Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Welcome back, buddy. Thank you. Whirlwind trip to Singapore. Yeah, three days, two hours behind, not too jet lagged. International just- man of mystery. I'll tell you about mystery. I was, I was in the cadaver lab, if that's a mystery. Oh, yeah? How was that? It was fantastic. Really, really amazing. We had, I think there's like 28 stations, nearly 200 doctors. Wow. About one cadaver head or specimen per four doctors. Yeah. It was amazing. You always learn. You always yeah. learn. I did a three-year anatomy degree. I did medicine. I've done injecting for 15 years, and I'm still learning. What so. was the biggest takeaway? Um... Just to, uh, well, this is like really specific, but when, when you inject the piriform fossa, this area next to your nostril, um, people argue, and Jamie will ask you as well, our guest, do you use a needle or a cannula when you do that? I use a needle. I've, I think that I like to feel like my bevel is right down deep on the periosteum. Yes. Maybe it's a psychological thing, but I definitely prefer needle. Okay. Your psychology was right because I've, I've always thought that, but then I've played around with cannula. And yeah. so what we did is on one of the cadavers, we had pre-filled filler with dye and then we could obviously inject the cadaver and do both methods and then dissect and see where the filler went. Mm. And um, one of our very experienced colleagues, I won't mention her name, but she's very, very good. And she's defaulted to cannula for the last few years in the thought that it would be safer and potentially more accurate. But when we opened up the cadaver, the filler was nowhere near the nostril. In fact, it was nearer the artery than, oh. you know, than than wow. than than you'd want it. So yeah. anyway, so that was really interesting. That was just a random takeaway. Yep. But you know, just reminding yourself, yep. you, you can't remember all this stuff if you don't look in a face regularly. Yeah, it's like any skill; you sort of lose it. Yeah. So and, yeah, and excellent. And so you just arrived back yesterday, or was it the day before? Uh, yeah, yesterday morning. Yesterday, how's your jet lag? Uh, it's all right. I'm a bit tired. I've got a bit of a stiff shoulder, but from uh, yeah. trying to sleep in business, which is always difficult. Oh, you poor thing. <laughs> poor thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, <that> wasn't, <laughs> wow. <laughs> it always sounds so glamorous, but trust me, it's not. So yeah. we're. Back in the studio again, we're recording chapter 10 of The Business of Injecting. Chapter 10, that's Chapter crazy. 10, I know. And we kind of informally introduced you, Jamie. Now, pronunciation, pronunciation on your last name, is it Uralis? It's Uralis, Uralis. Yes. Is that Greek? Wow. Where's that from? It is Greek, oh, yeah. There you go, I'm winning today. I've got that first go. That's there you impressive. go. Well and, done. <laughs> yeah. And so just to give people a bit of background, you and I have started working together on the business side of your clinic. You're doing really, really well. And some of the discussions that we've had, I think would be useful and beneficial for people that are listening to this that might be in similar positions to you or have aspirations to sort of create and grow successful businesses. So thank you very much for joining us and agreeing to let us grill you for an hour and a half on everything to, <laughs> everything to do with your clinic. So we're, 
inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So mm-hmm. we're on chapter 10 of what we call the business of injecting episodes. This was David's brainchild. So these episodes, if you're new to the podcast, we we sort of choose injectors of various experience and backgrounds and sort of delve into how they did it from the business perspective. Yeah. yeah. So um, I'm looking forward to this one because I didn't plan any of it. <laughs> this was all done when I was away. Oh, I've done it all. What, what could possibly go I'm wrong? I'm just going to sit back and <laughs> enjoy the show. Yeah. So Jamie, t- tell us about um, your practice and your background. I- I've obviously had a-, a quick read, but it's interesting. So tell us. Um, so I guess for me, my pathway was probably a little bit different to uh, the general nurse injector. I started as a dermal therapist, so that was 16 years ago. Um, A bit of background story before that, I actually had no aspirations to work in skin or medicine or nursing at all. I actually studied social science and I hated it. Came back to my hometown and thought, I like, you know, pretty things. I like beauty. I'm going to do that just as a temporary role. Uh, and I started doing that for a little while. Um, and one of the clinics I was working at, there were nurse injectors there. And that's what gave me the idea that, hey, maybe I could be a nurse injector. Um, the nurse injector was actually Nicole from Juve, but I'm right. still with Juve. So that was a very long time ago. Um, and progressively I did my registered nursing degree. Um, which I actually loved. By the time I got to the end of my degree, I wasn't actually sure if I wanted to do injecting at all anymore. Mm. I started, I was still doing some skin stuff just on the side. Um, I did my new grads. I worked in operating theatres. I thought I wanted to go down the theatre aspect. I did some critical care experience. Um, And then one day I got a phone call and it was from Melissa and Nicole. And they were like, and this is when it was, this is 10 years ago. So this was when the injecting space for nurses was quite new, wasn't as mainstream as it is now. Uh, and they were like, you know, do you want to come in for a chat? We, you know, we need nurses. And I wasn't really convinced at the time that I wanted to do it. But, um, after speaking to them, you know, they pitched a really good deal. They paid for all of my training. Um, the training was very different back then. And yeah, I progressed and started working for them for, uh, it would have been maybe two or three years whilst also still working at the hospital. So it was a bit of a side hustle for a little while. Um, yeah. And then I guess progressively, long story short, it's quite a long story. I suppose I, um, worked for them as an employee and we subcontracted out to other clinics. So that was in the days where we would turn up to, you know, chain clinics. It was mostly the Ella Rouges back then. And we'd have our suitcase full of filler <laughs> and I'd have my, um, you know, little Botox cooler bag and I'd have my heels on and be very sort of glamour- glamorous. Um, and I'd come along to these other chain clinics and do their injectables. Um, and then it got to a stage where things started to grow, I think, as an industry. And the chains that we worked with decided that they wanted to have um, their own in-house nurses. So essentially, I think that they saw it as a bit of a um, a money grab. Hmm. I don't think they maybe realized how much um, dedication goes into actually becoming a good injector. Um, and so anywho, I um, was pushed out of there essentially. And that was when Melissa and Nicole actually tried to convince me to... Uh, do it as a business. Um, 
So at the time, I didn't really want to have a business. I wasn't really excited about that. It made me feel really nervous. Um, I was very reluctant to start out in business, but they definitely were a great support network and they really did nurse me along the pathway of how to do that. And I think I was in our area was probably one of the first nurses to actually become a nurse injector with their own business. So it was daunting, but also looking back, what a blessing. It's worked in my favor now all of these years later. That's fantastic. Just a reference hmm. for those people who may be listening, thinking, what the hell is Juve? We actually had Melissa and Nicole on, on episode 204. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, in short, they're sort of a, a training business support and sort of connector for nurses to work at practices. Yeah. Their business model has kind of morphed over the years. As Jamie alluded to, they started off by providing subcontracting nurse injectors to various skin and beauty clinics. Yeah. And as Jamie said, once these clinics like Ella Rouge started to go, hold on, we could do this ourselves. And I think they kind of pivoted and changed their business to more mm. of a support. I'm not, I think they do this, obviously still do the scripting side of things yeah. and providing yeah. training. So it's it's interesting yeah. how even their business has sort of pivoted to sort of move with the industry and how things have changed. Yeah. It's probably worth um, maybe talking about where you're working and the location. I've never been to Central Coast or just saying to David, yeah. I should visit one day, but that will give some context to you know, what you're doing, why, what your setup's like yep. and what your market's like. Yeah. You'll have to come and visit us one day. Absolutely. We, well, Jake was just saying he hasn't been up to the Central Coast before. No. So yeah. we'll do a road Hi. trip. Well, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We'll have a um, have a birthday party and invite you guys. Sure. <laughs> um, where, um, so where I am now, we've progressed where I, I was. So I was originally working when I decided to go in and open things as my own business. I eventually opened a clinic in Tugra, which was maybe half an hour away from where I am now in Terrigal. It was going really well. It was a bit of an, um, you know, um, older sort of space that I didn't always love. Uh, it really got very busy very quickly for me, gratefully so. And so I started to generally expand. Back then, we practiced under the um, brand name Jamie Jex. And that was really just because that was just a, you know, that was just a catchy Instagram name I had, but that was what everybody knew me as. So while I was in Tugra, I eventually expanded. I brought on another nurse and um, a therapist. Um, but where I am now is we've rebranded to the Cosmetic Couture and that's where we are here in Terrigal. And for anyone that's just wondering, Terrigal is about an hour and a half north of Sydney. So it's just up the coast. So just to orientate listeners. And we call yeah. that the Central Coast. Central Coast, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So Terrigal's beautiful. You guys should all come and visit us. It's a lovely beachside suburb. Um, and yeah, so I'm practicing there now, but we decided to rebrand. It was maybe two years ago in the middle of a lockdown. Great time to rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> it was just whilst we were, you know, 2020 was a obviously really stressful year for I think a lot of us. So whilst that was going ahead, I sort of thought to myself, what do I see for business for the future? How do I change this from being me as the sole practitioner to opening opening up a few more doors, particularly for the other people that were working with me? You know, when I was Jamie and Jex, it was hard to convince people to see someone that wasn't Jamie from Jamie and Jex. Hmm. Um, so we decided to rebrand and that's when I opened up the clinic in Terrigal. And it's we've, we've been lucky. It's been amazing there, but it's coming up to two years here in October. Yeah. I was going to ask, actually, apart from obviously, you know, 
not branding it just for yourself, but other injectors. Did it help with SEO? Did it help de-risk you as a as a personal injector? Like, was there any other reason why you changed the name? Absolutely. See, I think I had worked really hard for quite a long time. It was maybe seven or eight years that I was functioning as Jamie Injects. And I guess I definitely can't deny I was a little bit nervous to open my doors up to other practitioners you know, things go wrong or someone comes in and has a complication and it really tarnished my own personal reputation. Mm. So by creating the cosmetic couture, it was sort of made it a little bit more of a collaboration of a team rather than just something that was personally against me specifically. Mm. Mm-hmm. though, we've got a good team and I haven't yep. had any troubles. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say, I'm assuming when someone's on a website and they might type, I don't know, cosmetic clinic, that's better SEO and you're going to be searched better than Jamie and Jex. So from that perspective as well, if you notice them when you look at your back end of your website or when you speak to your digital team, was that a strategy as well? Well, to be absolutely honest, I know we might cover some of this stuff Mm. later on, but marketing, and I know I've briefly touched on this with David, but this is a terrible area for me. Mm. You know, when you talk about the back end of your website and SEOs. I have focused really hard on being a good registered nurse that provides good treatments. You know, we take really good care of our patients, but it was honestly probably only about a year ago that I figured out what all of these things were, Jake. So I'm not, I'm not really sure. I think I, as I say, I was lucky to start in the industry when things really got moving. So I was able to build my reputation quickly. So I suppose Marketing got thrown in the, in, you know, cyberspace. I really did not pour much energy into it whatsoever. Yeah. Um, because we were already so busy, it sort of wasn't something that I put as a priority. Whereas now I, I definitely do see the value in marketing, not, not just to attract new clients, but it really is like your online business card. But when it comes to looking at the back end of how we got our patients and what they're looking for, it really is a gray area for me. Hmm. Yeah. You must say that a lot, David. Yeah. And I mean, it's, this is not unusual. I mean, how would you guys know all this stuff? It's not anything that you've been trained for. And so it's, it's very confusing. People don't know where to start. And even people that have been doing it for a long time because of the the rate at which things are moving and, and the trends are sort of progressing. Thank you, Jake. Just adjusting, <laughs> Just the, adjusting the mic. Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's hard even for someone that knows what they're doing to try and keep up with things. So it's, I guess, a testament to sort of what you were able to bring to the table, the relationship you had with your clients, that even despite having very little knowledge or, or skills outside of you know, injecting the clients that you managed to do quite well. And I think a lot of that comes down to, as you said, timing. There's always, always an element of luck in, in most yep. people's success. Um, but you know, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So you've obviously done a lot of right things in the back end, <laughs> back end before you got to that point. So when you decided to have your own business, like what was the thought process that you, that you kind of went through? What planning did you do? Where did you come up with the money? All those sorts of really difficult obstacles that people come up against when they've got this idea, but don't know how to con- conceptualize it and, and turn it into a reality. Yeah, I think the main motivation to open the Cosmetic Couture was at that time, I felt a lot of our patients were coming to us with skin problems, Mm. um, all sorts of problems. You know, people would come to me to have their Botox done and expect that I could fix everything. 
from pigmentation to acne. Uh, lucky I did have the skin background, so I was able to steer them in the right direction. But we really didn't have the resources that, you know, the staff resources to be able to help people. So I found on a day-to-day basis, I was really sending my clients elsewhere to have these treatments done. Um, that in itself got tricky. You know, I would send them to local clinics that maybe they wouldn't always have a positive experience. Um, and sometimes it became my fault. So that was really tricky. Mm. Um, and so when I decided the cosmetic couture was something I wanted to do, it was really just about being able to provide a more wholesome, you know, holistic treatment plan for our clients who had these other concerns. I think as far as the business strategy went, there really wasn't any. My business strategy was that I wanted to be able to help our clients. I was listening to what their concerns were. I knew I was able to help them. And I I, I wanted to try to be a good source, reliable, uh, knowledgeable with good devices that, you know, someone that our patients could count on. Yep. And that really is how we have become successful. I I really think the key for us has been just really listening to where the demand was. Yeah. And so um, getting back to the money side of things, because I've I've seen your clinic, um, not in person, just in online with the videos that you've put up and whatnot, but that doesn't look like a cheap fit out. That looks like like it was uh, quite pricey. So how did you sort of budget for that? Like where did that come from? Because a lot of people have amazing ideas and dreams, but they just don't have the resources to to sort of make them yeah. happen. So where, where did that come from? Well, I actually, a little bit of a back-end story. Obviously, we had our 2020 lockdown and this is where I came up with all these ideas because all I, you know, like most of us, all we had time for was to um, think. Yeah. So I came up with these ideas. We went back to work and then I thought, right, I'm going to do it. So I started mapping out, the, you know, where I was going to move the clinic to, the type of brand that I wanted to be. I knew that I wanted us to be more of a luxury feel. I knew I wanted to have devices. And then, of course, you need to make sure that you have the financial means to put all of this stuff Mm. together. So a lot of the money I actually borrowed back off my mortgage, my home mortgage, which was kind of terrifying at the time. (laughs) Um, But when I actually got even more terrifying was when I'd found this really old beaten up shop. It was terrible. It didn't even have a functioning roof. It was just horrible. You wouldn't recognize it if you saw what it was when I first took it over. Um, So I found this space and I thought, okay, I can transform this, no problem. You know, I bought my first device, which was around about 160,000. Signed all the papers, got the money ready to go. And then we went into another lockdown. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) That was kind of terrifying. Um, So I'm sitting there knowing that I've just got myself into uh, maybe two, three, well, probably about $300,000 worth of additional debt and not knowing when we would be going back to work. So uh, it was terrifying. I think that the only reason they actually gave me the money is because I had a background in injecting and they'd seen my figures prior. Mm. Whereas looking back, I don't know if I don't know if they would have given me that money today. Yeah. Wow. So the whole fit out so to start from a broken down shop that was leaking dilapidated and needed <laughs> a complete redo to having this beautiful functioning clinic with your first device, all of your cupboard stock, your computers, everything cost you what, three or four hundred thousand? 
More than that, I would say. Yeah. Realistically, the 300,000 was maybe the device and probably not even the whole fit out. Right. I, I um, so probably, by the time you stock your cupboards, yeah. you're looking at more like around five, 600,000. You know, wow. we had other little devices as well. Um, you know, you add in the things that you don't think of, yeah. like shop signage. Um, yeah. You know, landing a new website—that was mm. when I actually started yeah. to put a bit wow. of effort into marketing. It's it's a huge outlay, and it's actually terrifying. Yeah, I mean, that's mm. what does that work out? Maybe Jake can do some math in terms of what does that translate to in American and UK dollars, because we've got all the listeners overseas. I'm gonna I'm gonna teach you a word today, Jamie, that I think describes you very well. It's a Yiddish word, <laughs> and it's called chutzpah. I'm this is something good here. Yeah, it's, it's called it's called chutzpah. <laughs> Anyone that's sort of Jewish or yeah, chutzpah. Mm-hmm. And so basically it means nerve or audacity. Big balls. Big balls. Oh, and so um, <laughs> I think to do what you've done in a lockdown to take money off your mortgage, so the home where you live, um, on a new business venture with very little business background during a lockdown, is uh, that's the best word I could use to describe it. And I guess do you think that if you – do you think there was a level of of sort of, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but like a level of in, in, in incompetence to a certain point that you didn't know what you didn't know and almost that was a saving grace because if you were sort of acutely aware of the sort of risk you were taking, maybe you wouldn't have done what you've done? Most definitely. Look, looking back, I barely knew what I was getting myself into when I decided right. to open the cosmetic couture. Yeah. The other risk factor, thank you for the um, compliments, by the way. I'm yeah. glad you feel I've got big balls. But, um, <laughs> probably the other risk factor there that I haven't mentioned was as much as I did work mobile, so when I was first, you know, working for Juve, going here, there and everywhere mm-hmm. to different chain clinics, I sort of was going anywhere from around the corner for maybe a few hours a week to other clinics that would maybe be an hour and a half away from me. Mm. So I really wasn't like I had a huge reputation just in our local community. It was a little bit of everywhere. But when I moved to Tugger, of course, I was able to build up a good clientele base and we were really busy and everything was great. But moving to Terrigal, that that was still risky because yeah. Terrigal, for anyone who knows the geographical location is at least 30 minutes away from Tugra. So I knew there was a chance there that not everyone, not everyone would follow me. It's actually really interesting when you look at where your patients come from. And I'm sure I'm I'm sure that you're the same, Jake. I'm sure this happens to a lot of injectors, but some of your clients will say traveling an extra 30 minutes is just ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. They're not going to come an extra 30 minutes. They're too busy, whatever. And I respect that. That's understandable. And then in the next breath, I have people that come interstate to come and visit me, which is just mind-blowing. So I think no matter where you are, of course, you will attract clients. But I definitely know that some of the clients that I was seeing in Tugra probably didn't come over. I mean, there are clinics on absolutely every corner here on the Central Coast and growing all the time. Um, so that was risky, but I think what, honestly, I think if I'm honest, the reason why I was comfortable with my decision to do this was because I'd grown a client base before, you know, I started from scratch and as woo-woo as it is, I honestly think the key is you just have to really care about your clients. You really do. 
I think besides all the SEOs, is that what it is? The SEOs and the, (laughs) you know, um, KPIs and business stuff. I think the essential essence of creating a successful cosmetic business is your relationships with your patients and the trust that you can create amongst them. Um, I think it's about how you make people feel. And I think that that is something that I know that I, I, I do do well. I mean, I'm, I know that business is a, a bit of a sketchy area for me, but I know that um, when patients come to see me, they feel confident in what we're, we're trying to achieve together. 100%. Well, if anyone's listening, we have circled back to that point time and oh, yeah. time again. You're right, Jamie. It is your X factor. It is your passion it's your willingness to go the extra mile but not chasing every single patient who doesn't fully align with that so sure if a patient thinks half an hour is too far then maybe they're not going to be a long-term patient you know that's just life well they're seeing you as a commodity and either that's you've failed in your job to build that value and that connection or they're just not the right person for you yeah Agreed. Yeah. By the way, going back to those figures, yes. so that was about three hundred and eight thousand UK pounds, or three hundred and eighty-five thousand US dollars. So not insignificant. That's, that's a few bickies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got a question. We actually had um, Brittany Crowsdale on. She's a, a nurse practitioner from the states, and for our patrons, um, you're one of our new patrons, so you can check this video, Jamie. Um, she did a, a video of a walkthrough of her new clinic, and that clinic is it's another level it's like two floors it's like multi-room there's theaters in there and it's insane but one of the takeaways that she gave for us was it might seem expensive to to invest and and you've done the same and maybe it felt expensive at the time but she said it will be more expensive and more difficult to try and refurb what you originally did without the clear vision or or having to reinvest in something that you didn't quite do how you wanted to do it so do you agree that even though it was expensive at the time you now have a clinic that you're proud of and you're not having to change or I mean maybe you'd expand that's a different question but do do you think that's good advice I couldn't agree more I I really I think that it's also nice just to work in a place that you you love yeah I mean I wish my house looked like my clinic it kind of has this um you know, New York City apartment vibes. It's really like, it kind of looks like a bit of a dollhouse. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's really beautiful. And I think it's really welcoming. And it is something that we're, you know, when I decided to move the clinic, I was confident when people would come and see me at their new clinic, they could see why I did it. Not yeah. like, oh, this is weird. She yeah. sort of moved up the road for same, same. So uh, I think it also says a lot about your brand and who you are as well. I do think that your clinic does reflect who you are and what you're about. You know, we um, we don't have any, you know, debatable, I'm sure, but we don't have any like ugly pamphlets or big ugly sharp bins or like cleaning stuff in the clinic. It's all out of sight, out of mind because I want it to feel like luxury. I want people to feel like they're at somewhere special that they enjoy being. Mm. Uh, I also think a lot of patients still do, well, on the coast anyway, a lot of patients still do feel quite nervous to come come in for treatment. They're still we haven't completely eradicated this sort of stigma against injectables. So I think walking them into an environment that doesn't feel excessively clinical already sets the scene that they're gonna enjoy their entire experience from start to finish. Mm. 
think it might be worth mentioning as well that a fit out that looks like something you've created and we've spoken to other injectors on, on the podcast before, like I'm thinking back to Dr. Kate Jamieson from mm. Youth Lab over in Perth, that your fit out, your clinic is actually part of your marketing campaign. It's actually part of what you're communicating to your patients you're all about. So when you look at what is your most powerful source of new business or new clients, it comes from referrals. And so the more that people love coming and seeing you, the more they love being in your space, the more patients you're going to get who are similar to the patients that you already have. So I would see the fit out as actually not just the bricks and mortar and, and a functional space, it actually forms a, a really large, powerful part of, of your marketing campaign as well. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us how, how the process works of designing a clinic? Did you work with an architect, uh, uh, you know, an interior designer? How long does that take? Um, what's the most expensive part apart from obviously, you know, the, the, the building and the supplies? I actually got really lucky. My best friend, her husband, owns a construction company mm. and they did they were amazing they don't generally do shop fit outs but I think they felt sorry for me because I didn't know <laughs> what I was doing and so they helped me with every step of the process it was actually incredible you know they they helped me with the design they helped me with the architecture the only things that I really you know um I really took charge of was the actual you know the look and feel the pretty stuff and everything else was great. I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly where the biggest expenses were. I think actually in the joinery, mm, joinery, yeah. we only have three clinic rooms. It's only a small space, but the joinery from memory was really expensive yeah. because you're essentially creating, you know, three kitchens. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a costly factor, you know, and it, as I say, like we are a small clinic, but it's amazing how functional you can create a small clinic if you have a strategic plan. Yeah, and it's designed by designed by a woman. Well, I, see, exactly. I see a lot of clinics that are designed by men, and it's generally not good from a functional perspective. There's never <laughs> there's never enough storage. The cupboards are too high. There's just yeah. no sort of thought around <laughs> around where you're going to put everything and how you and how you're going to easily access it and ergonomics and all those kinds of things. Yeah, it's a good point. How, how did you plan that? And and it I guess it depends on how you work as an injector, your patient flow, how much stock you like to keep. So give us some insight into that. Yeah, so it was really important for me that the and I suppose it's just from working in other clinics, I picked up on things that I did like and I didn't like. So it worked out to be quite a blessing in the end. But I guess what I I knew I really wanted to make sure of was that the reception desk is nowhere near people are sitting in the weight room. I think there's nothing more awkward for both the client and the injector and the receptionist when the client's leaving, they're paying their money, they've spent, you know, $4,000 on, or, you know, a high amount on whatever that they're purchasing for the day. And then with someone sitting behind them, the receptionist says, oh, that'll be $4,000. And you always <laughs> yeah. see the person behind them go, oh my God, yeah. you know, it's embarrassing for everyone. It's a, it's an awkward, strange situation. So I really wanted to make sure that the waiting area was well and truly away from where the money side of things were. Uh, also in the treatment room, I have this funny little thing that I think is a real game changer for me. Uh, and I literally never consult my patients with them laying on the bed. Mm. I, I hate it. I think as soon as patient lays on the bed, 
the relationship changes. I feel if you really want to give a thorough consultation, which is your make or break, you know, your consultations are really the, the, they're your opportunity to make sure that a patient feels heard and that you, that they're able to trust you. So I have patients sit on a chair. They come into our clinic, they sit in a chair. I have these really tricky, cleverly um, designed pull out desks that come out from the, from the vanity. So a patient sits down and I sit at the desk as well with them. And before we go injecting anything, we come up with a strategic plan together. And then by the time the patient sits on the bed, we've already done our consultation. We've done our photos. We've done our prescriptions. And it just feels a little bit more like um, a genuine service rather than jumping on the bed. So I knew it was important for me when designing the clinic that we had those little things put in place where people could actually sit down for a no risk conversation. Yeah. Mm. That's an interesting point, isn't it? When you, you talk about the psychology of how things change once it becomes apparent to both parties that now we're moving into a clinical realm and developing that relationship, that trust, getting them to feel comfortable with what it is you're talking about without the fear of the needle going in the face. I think once people feel the clinical side of things is, is sort of activated, the, the, the capacity to sort of communicate and build that rapport potentially could be somewhat compromised. So I think it's interesting we talk about that psychology because, mm. you know, people like us, even though I'm not an injector, this stuff's very normal. I mean, I've had treatments galore. I've had- clinics. You haven't, have you? <laughs> <laughs> um, and you be- it becomes normalized. It almost becomes, you become desensitized to what it's actually like to be a patient. So I think that's a really good point. So if anyone that's listening, I think maybe- rewind and listen to that again because the consultation and the building rapport that is where all the magic happens i mean the clinical side of things everyone's focused on that and we've spoken about this so many times everyone's focused on the clinical side of things and that's i think an absolute just you know that's a no-brainer that's like just assumed that you're going to be clinically capable yeah but it's that part that step that i think is overlooked and the importance of of building that relationship and the trust and the rapport and i think the strategy that you've outlined there um, has probably been a big part of of the success. I think it's it's really good. Hundred um, percent. Just to give you some uh, insights into what I saw from our Asian colleagues when yeah. I was away a few days ago, it's it's weird. I think we spoke about this once before, mm. but in China traditionally, um, well, first of all, they don't have standalone clinics; they have hospitals. Yeah. So massive buildings, eight story, with everything from surgery to dermatology to injecting and pathology and everything, but. You know, you go there as a patient, you, you go to the floor where the injectables are, and you don't meet the injector or the doctor. It's only doctors um, in China injecting at the moment. You meet a what they used to call a beauty consultant. Mm-hmm. So this consultant is essentially a salesperson who has a bit of knowledge about injectables. And so, you know, you, you sit in a room and 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 you sort of reel off your list of what you want today, and the beauty consultant kind of goes... Yeah, sure, sure, sure. And basically they, they tot up the total. <laughs> and then you get presented to the doctor who effectively acts as a performing monkey and does the treatment. So not good practice, and that is changing. I did hear from our Chinese colleagues that is now changing and they're, they're, they're sort of doing away with that. But I guess the point is there is a space, just like Jamie said, prior to injecting where there is a, a, a deliberate differentiation between consultation and treatment. And I think if you can do that well, like Jamie's doing, it, it, it does define um, what you're trying to achieve better. 
you know, so often patients come to us with a very clear idea of, I want my frown lines gone, I want bigger lips, whatever. But if you dissociate yourself from that and, and sort of just have a proper chat, proper talk, go through facial aging and do your photos and whatever, before you get to the bed, I think it changes the patient's perspective of what they're going to get mm. and, and what's actually on offer. So I, I completely agree with you. I can't do this in my clinic because we're limited by space. But what I say to the patient is, have a seat or have a lie down. However, and I make it very explicit, we're not going to go to treatment. We're just going to talk. We're going to go through all of your wants and wishes and also fears before we get to the injecting stage. So I almost try to do the same thing, but within the confines of what I have. I don't have a desk where I can sort of not well, think about injecting. It's interesting, isn't it? Because people fear the unknown. Yeah. You know, what's that saying? There's nothing to fear except fear itself. <laughs> people fear the unknown and they walk into your clinic and they don't know what they're going to, they don't know what to expect. Yeah. So it's almost like if you, as you said, set the scene for what's going to happen. This is what we're going to, this is who I am. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to start off talking about. And then we're going to, so I think just giving people an outline of what's actually going to take place automatically brings that level of anxiety and fear down. Mm. And again, the more that you can get people to their normal resting state from a communication perspective, you're going to find that information is going to flow between the two of you because it's almost like there's a barrier up. Yeah. If people are scared and anxious and they, and they don't know what to expect, it's almost like only 5% of what you're saying is actually going to be absorbed into their brain. Yeah. Yeah. Here's another thing that came up. I want to ask you, Jamie. If you had the money and the space, would you ever work with a... I don't know, like a, an injecting assistant, someone who could assist you with that patient flow and maybe make, you know, the checkout a bit more discreet and maybe you don't have to take them out and talk about the money and maybe have a separate room where the cleaning of the face is done prior to even, you know, meeting you and then maybe have a clinical photography room. Like you can, you can just scale this and, and take it to the nth degree. So if you did have the space and money, what would you change or, or add in? Yeah, I would absolutely love to have an assistant, even <laughs> from a, I mean, what injector wouldn't, right? Like, obviously, when we go to conferences and we watch these fabulous assistants on stage passing needles and cannulas, it's, oh, it looks incredible. Mm. Occasionally, when I have had an assistant helping me, oh my gosh, the treatment's done so quickly and efficiently. Yeah. There's less risk of infection or cross-contamination. So I would love to have um, uh, someone helping me in that respect. The only thing that I don't know if I would change is sometimes I feel creating a relationship with your patient, it happens from start to finish yeah. of their entire experience. So I think if you're limiting too much of the time itself that you're spending with your patient, it is harder to create those relationships. Even if you had someone that was fantastic, you know, cleaning them, taking their photos, doing all the things that don't necessarily need to be us. I think that you can sometimes miss out on some of that energy exchange. And I think that that is where you do start to build the trust within your clients. So I don't know if I would replace everything, but I would like to have an assistant. For us, a lot of the time, we do have someone who will take the patient's money and rebook the patients. And that's really great. Um, but in terms of the clinical stuff, sometimes I think I do like to be a little bit more hands-on with that. Mm. What would you do? Would you have an assistant? I, I have to say I, I agree with you. Um, and also I've got a control problem where if those photos <laughs> yeah. aren't perfect, then they're useless and actually they can affect, you know, problems down the line. If there's a complaint or whatever, I need that photo to be bang on. Um, 
but yeah, I, I've toyed around with with maybe employing someone just for a week, just to you know, so it's not. Um, no, you know, there's no commitment either way. I can sort of you know change assistant if it's not working out, but also they don't feel like they're in the wrong place if they're not getting anything out of it. Um, I've had people shadow me just for the day, and that's quite nice to have two injectors in the room where if an, you know, if a patient's a bit nervous or they need you know, just a hand-holding or just something, it, it adds to the patient experience. Um, but it, for me, it does confuse things because then my ergonomics are different and there's someone in the way and yeah. some things that mm. I want to do, someone's suddenly helping me. And it just throws you balance until you're used to getting that help. Mm. But yeah, I think longer term, it would be a great strategy. Yeah. So devices, this is, I guess, the primary reason that you reached out to me, I think initially was some advice on devices and we've sort of now gone in a completely different direction. Yeah. We're talking, we'll get to devices, but I think there were some steps we needed to take before we get there. But you said you started off with a $160,000 device. And this is a question that comes up a lot in our WhatsApp chat groups. And now that you're part of that, you'll see these sort of questions flow through. Maybe you can share some of your experiences and wisdom while you're there when you, when you get time. But the device question seems to come up time and time again. So people feel like they need to offer more than just injectables. They're expensive. Mm -hmm. Clunky, you, ugly. Yeah, you know, sometimes <laughs> there's, there's consumables in, involved. You don't know which one to get. The salespeople are really good at telling you their device is great and everyone else's is not and this is how much money you're going to make and all this amazing forecasting that they kind of do for you. So share some of your, share some of your wisdom with us in terms of how you selected the device, was it the right decision in retrospect? And how did you make sure that it wasn't just becoming an expensive paperweight that was collecting dust? And I think maybe your skin background played a big part in that, but just educate us a bit on that if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so the first big device I bought was the Venus Versa, which is from the Venus Concepts range. And you're right, you know, having a skin background, it definitely did work in my favor. I really wanted to find a device that was super easy to function because I knew it wasn't me that was going to be functioning it. So just like Jake, I'm a bit of a control freak. I want to make sure what's going on behind those four walls is safe and everyone's taken care of. So I want a device that was as minimally risky as possible. Um, and the Venus really did fit into that category. It is a multi-modality device, so it, it does ablative resurfacing. It does IPO for redness and for um, pigmentation, skin tightening. So it does cellulite reduction. It, it, it is a good device, absolutely. But to be absolutely honest, just I know David and I, we've chatted about this, but it can be hard to really pick up what makes you money? By the time you actually pay these expensive devices off, and I have some other ones as well, you know, you pay your staff to use them, you pay them bonuses or rewards for doing a good job. It adds extra GST. Some of them has have consumables. It's actually hard to figure out how much money these devices really do make you, if at all. But I think sometimes it is the difference of a patient coming to your clinic and not coming to your clinic having these devices that you offer. Mm. You know, I know it's worked vice versa for our patients. Some patients weren't necessarily injectable clients at all. They've just come to us for to, to have some kind of skin treatment done and eventually they turn into injectable patients. Yeah. But also vice versa, patients of mine that really 
had taken terrible care of their skin. The Central Coast is home of sun lovers and um, sun-damaged skins. So they might be coming to me to have their injectables for years and years, but do absolutely nothing to their skin. Mm -hmm. So having the devices meant that we were able to keep them within our four walls and try to take care of their skin, which, of course, um, selfishly, it made my work also look better. Botox and fillers looks better if you have a beautiful, refined skin. It was a bit of a Mm -hmm. no-brainer. Then we progressively introduced some um, body devices. So I have the TrueSculpt from Kutera. Great device. It's been incredibly popular for us. Um, But again, it does have consumables. It wasn't cheap. You know, every time a patient comes in to have the treatment done, we have additional expenses on top of that. So it is a little bit of a minefield figuring out what devices you should be buying. Uh, and I think that all I could really go off was just the clinical papers presented to me by, of course, the people selling the devices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they were always very fabulous and very convincing. Um, but it is, it's, it's really tricky to decide on the right device to buy. And then once you have the device, it doesn't end there. You need to get it serviced. You need to, we actually just had something break on one of the devices last week and that device is out of warranty. So uh, now we have to pay for that. It's, it is a bit of an ongoing cost. Mm. Yeah. I, I was going to ask a question. Obviously, skin makes sense. You know, you're, you're looking after the face and I completely agree that if the canvas isn't right, the injectables never sing. But what about body? Because that, that, that's a tricky one sometimes for injectors to add into their clinic so i mean i know it's an aesthetic device but did you find that you had demand from your patients or what made you go down that route and and how have you made it successful because many clinics don't body is tricky body is is definitely tricky because with skin as soon as someone comes into your clinic we know that they want to treat they they want to treat their face. If they're coming for injectables, it's a very uh, expected chat that will bring in how to improve their skin as well. Mm. Whereas you can't come into a skin clinic and I say, by the way, I have got this device and we can shrink your love handles. Yeah. It's not a welcoming chat. I you know, <laughs> I very much have the culture in our clinic that everyone walks out still feeling good about themselves. So the last thing that I want is anyone to come along and push a body device into somebody and expect them to feel comfortable with that recommendation. So that is actually when I realized that I need to get better at marketing, like external marketing, because I feel body had to be something that patients brought up themselves because it's not something that we could swing into the conversation and hope that they sort of went for it. It had to be something that the patient had seen on our website, our social media, et cetera, and want that for themselves. But as much as it is a hard body can be hard, it is definitely a niche market. There is, I I truly do think the future of our industry really is going to expand in body. We've also, from the injectables side, we also have been doing more injectables for the body. Like we've been doing Sculptra for hip dips, you know, smoothing out um, cellulite, doing, you know, a bit more juicier bums and it's been really quite popular. Uh, we're also about to do a little bit more training in radius. Mm-hmm. You probably are a bit more aware of this as well. That you know, radius is incredible for skin laxity. Really good for you know little saggy parts on people's arms or knees or crepey hands, etc. So I feel body for us is extremely popular 
but just a tricky one to work into the conversation. I feel it has to come from the patient. Yeah. Just want to just circle back for one sec, Jamie, when you were talking about understanding the true cost of a device and just wanted to sort of highlight something that I think everyone should be doing is making sure that you really understand what the true cost is, as you said. So making sure that your accounting software is set up correctly so that when you're recording income, it's not just money from inject or skin or product. You can actually see which potential devices, which are the different revenue streams of your business are actually making money that when costs come in for consumables or service contracts, even the way a device may affect your insurance policy, all those kinds of things. Some devices need like three-phase power. They're going to use a, you know, a lot more like a lot of the laser hair removal devices like the Alexandrites, for example, like the Candela range. They'll use a, a three-phase power supply and use a lot more energy. So I think it's just important to know, as you said, what is the true cost, being conservative with what your projections are and actually really getting an understanding about what these devices are going to cost you because there's a lot of on-flow that you don't sort of anticipate. You just look at treatment's going to cost the patient $1,000, the consumable's $100, yay, I'm making $900 profit. And that's actually not, not the case. And then the other thing to look at as well is what's your opportunity cost? And what I mean by that is if you've got a room and a staff member tied up doing treatments, what are you potentially foregoing by having that in there? Is Would you be better off having another injectable room in there? How much income are you going to be able to derive from that? And then as you said, what are the other kind of intangible sort of wildcard factors that come into play as well? So having skin treatments, are they going to bring in a different sort of clientele that you wouldn't have access to before that then you can convert over to injectables? So it's just a lot more than... Mm how much is the treatment going to cost and what's the sort of the gross profit? There are a lot of other factors to consider and it's worthwhile. Every, every person's situation is going to be different. So it's not me telling you don't buy a device. I think devices are great, but it's just about doing that due diligence process thoroughly and taking into account all the other factors. Sorry, I just wanted to get that. No, here. really good points, David. Um, you seem to imply that you bought the machine outright, but, but did you do that or did you finance it? Because that's another question that a lot of yeah. uh, clinics will have to square. I mean, I guess if you've got the capital, why buy it? Because then you're not paying interest. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, like most people, then it can get expensive. So what, what are your comments on that, Jamie? I, with the first device, the, the Venus device, I, that was on finance. Mm -hmm. That was part of the clinic fit out expenses. But I must say, Venus Concepts, a bit of a shout out to them. They do a really fantastic finance agreement. It's completely interest-free. You pay the device off. They have a, a code for you to be able to access the device. If you've paid your bill, they give you the code. If you haven't paid your bill, you don't get the code. Hmm. So it means that the outlay upfront is minimal. You don't really notice the repayments sort of coming out progressively, but when I started looking into buying other devices, particularly with Qterra, I didn't realize that this wasn't a mainstream thing, that this isn't something that most device companies offer. And so with the Qterra, I looked into finance, but as we all know, interest rates are really high these days. And when I did my figures on how much I would be paying with the device plus the interest, it didn't make sense to do it. So I bought that one outright. Yeah. And it's nice not to have the headache. I mean, I do, I like to know, um, because obviously I don't have a business background. I like to know where I'm at financially. So I, I do feel if you have the capital there, you can purchase it outright. 
it makes sense to do so. Um, but I guess different things will work differently for different people. But the interest rates to to buy the Qterra device, it was around 12%. Wow. Yeah, that's that's crazy. ridiculous. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's an interesting point because I was talking to mm-hmm. someone else, Jamie, that, that we both know that was just that was buying a device as well. And when we were going through the process of how you're going to fund this and they said, oh, I've got finance secured at some very high interest rate. And their accountant had given them the okay on this. And I started asking questions around, well, do you have access to any money? Do you have a mortgage? Do you have anything in an offset account? Oh, yeah, I do. What's your interest rate you're paying on that? It's like three and a half, four percent And so my conversation with this person was, well, why don't you take that money from your mortgage rather than paying this ridiculous interest rate? And it was like a light bulb moment. And it was concerning to me that the accountant hadn't sort of raised this. And so I guess, again, it just gets back to the point that you you know, even though you want to be surrounded by a great support team of professionals, you know, a lawyer, a good accountant, potentially a business mentor, a coach, everyone that's listening to this that wants to be serious about business, even just like I've taken the time to understand injectables, even though I don't do them, I have, I have a reasonable idea about what's going on. The same thing applies to people who are medical or injectors need to take the time to at least educate themselves to a certain degree so that when someone tells you something, you've got enough of a baseline knowledge to go, that's bullshit. That doesn't make sense. I'm, I need to look into this further. I need to get another opinion. So I just wanted to sort of raise that as, as an interesting point that you need, you can't just outsource all your problems. You need a team around you, but you also need to take some responsibility to educate yourself to it to a certain degree. And don't rely on Facebook forums and random WhatsApp groups. Mm-hmm. I know we have WhatsApp groups yeah. and it's amazing support, but do your, do your due diligence. Yeah. Like you wouldn't just accept, if you didn't know anything about injectables, you wouldn't just accept what someone tells you to do without doing your own research or having a baseline level of knowledge. Yeah, 100%. Same thing applies. Sorry, Jamie. <laughs> I agree. I think that's one thing that I've learned as the years progress Injecting and business, they are two completely different roles. There, there's, it, you could, just like yourself, David, you could be a business expert and an expert injector. They're two different roles. And I think for a long time, and I, I'm sure I'm not the only one, I really didn't appreciate how much you really do need to know to be successful in business. You know, I think that the more you can outsource or the more you can learn about running a business, the more successful you'll naturally be. It seems like a no-brainer, but it's actually a lot of work to to learn about business. Yeah. And it's also hard because as clinicians and, and medical people and patient-centric personalities, that's where you gravitate towards. That's where you feel comfortable. That's your playground. That's where you want to be. Mm. And so going and doing something that's hard. And also the thing as well is that like I'm even, you know, discovering this with things that I'm trying to teach myself these days is that as an adult, it's really hard from you, from an egotistical perspective to suck at something. Mm. When you're yeah. a kid, when you're learning an instrument or you're learning to play a sport or whatever, like everyone expects you to suck because you're a kid, you're learning. When you become an adult and you've been extremely successful in another endeavor in life, that hit to your ego is, and it's not even like saying that you're an ego freak or some kind of conceited person. It's just, an in, I think it's in us yeah. that as an adult, it's very difficult to accept that you're bad at something. And, and then I think that then causes people to shy away from it and sort of just sort of bury their head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist or just outsource the problem, let someone else deal with it. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, you've got to fight that inclination and it's okay to be shit at something because yeah. we all started somewhere with whatever skill 
Yeah, I completely yeah, agree. Yeah. Well, that brings mm. me on to my next question for Jamie then. So you've gone from an injector to now an employer, presumably. Mm-hmm. So how was that challenge? Was it, I think the official title is Boss Bitch. Boss Bitch, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how have you found that challenge? And, and tell us how many injectors and, and staff you do employ. It's challenging. We are a small clinic at the moment. I have, there's just the four of us, but actually just yesterday I hired another two people for our little team. So it was a successful day of interviewing yesterday. Um, But honestly, I have a good team. Honestly, Uh, our team is great. They're reliable and skilled and I'm lucky. But managing staff is really hard. I actually feel this immense sense of responsibility to create an environment for people that work for me that they enjoy. It has to be a two-way street. Otherwise, you really won't keep staff. So uh, I've learned I really need to think outside the square with, you know, how does my staff learn? What do they enjoy doing? What does growth look like for them? Because it is different for everyone. The way that I learn, I, I love going to conferences. I love, you know, chatting to other people about what they're doing. Whereas what I've learned is not not everybody likes that. Some people want to just have their hands on in the clinic where it's a that's their safe space. So I've really had to think outside of what I like and try to figure out what what they like. And it's not easy. I think if I had my time over when I first started employing people, which was, you know, I first started employing people maybe around about 2018. I would have probably had a bit more of a clearer pathway for staff, maybe more clearer protocols, clearer expectations. But I guess because I was a new business at the time, I was just trying to learn things as we went. It was hard to really set these things in place because they were so new to us. Mm. But I can imagine for staff, that's confusing. People like to know where they're heading. They like to to be improving. They like to know what's expected of them but it is something that as an employer was new to me. How have you squared the problem of inviting an injector into your clinic and maybe even uh, training them or teaching them the Jamie way to then have the risk of them setting up down the road? Because that's that's a big problem for most injectors who employ other injectors. Yeah, look, it is, it's a really tricky one, absolutely. I like to think that the brand that we have created will, you know, People come to us because of our brand, not just for the individual injector. And I like to think that that's something that um, will benefit us even if we were to have changeover in staff. But I guess staff also have contracts. I mean, I think that it's very rare these days where an injector would work for somebody and not sign a contract because we need to protect ourselves in some way as well. I also try to create a space where injectors would want to stay in the sense that I, you know, I think that what I pay my injector is really um, it's significant. And I think that not everybody wants to or needs to have their own business. I mean, I just had one of my injector friends come in for their treatment with me well, maybe two weeks ago. And essentially, she's what you would call um, a competitor. But we obviously don't see ourselves as competitors. And she actually said to me, if you have a position that comes up, please let me know. I know sort of roughly what you would pay. And business is really hard. It's all those things that not everybody wants to do. Mm. So I think that not every business isn't necessarily for everyone. 
And I even think a lot of people that have maybe gone into running an aesthetics business have now realized that working for someone on a good rate um, with good opportunities probably isn't such a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of these sort of conversations are, can can help you if they had upfront and with transparency at the beginning. So one of the things that I used to do when I was employing injectors or staff was to just to find out what their goals and dreams and aspirations were and try and create a relationship where they felt they could come and talk to me about anything to do with their career, potentially even stuff that's outside of the work that might affect their performance in the clinic um, and understanding what drives different people. Different people, as you said, are going to have different career aspirations. Someone's very happy to come in and have a safe and secure environment to work in where they don't have to worry about anything else other than just taking care of their patients. Other people, as you said, have dreams and, and goals to want to go off and do their own thing. And I think that um, you know, even conversations that I had with Jake when he worked in my clinic was that, hey, look, I know that this might not be somewhere where you're going to be forever. You're probably going to move on and want to do bigger and better things. And there's going to be a point where I can't offer you the next step in your career. But I'd like to feel that we have a relationship where if you feel that time's coming, that we work on an amicable exit for mm. you and that, you know, it doesn't have to be awkward. I think a lot of people, especially younger people, they're not really good at what would be, I'm doing a little inverted commas here, like a confrontational conversation or a conversation that they're not comfortable with. And I think if you create that relationship from the beginning where people feel they can come and talk to you, where you understand just as you wanted to open up your own business, they may have those same goals for themselves, that at least it can be done in a way that's not going to be nasty. Because a lot of the times what happens is people don't feel comfortable coming and talking to their boss. They go and make these plans behind their boss's back they leave. It's not that they're a bad person or they've done it out of malice. It's just been no one's been an adult. There's been no adult in the room to A, set the relationship and the expectations and creating the safe space for people mm. to feel they can come and have those conversations. Or people that have just grown up in a different time where they, you know, we don't talk to each other anymore. I mean, everyone wants to communicate via text. And, and what was someone just wanting to go and do their own thing can be seen as, oh, this person stabbed me in the back, then the relationship sours, and then lawyers get involved. And it doesn't need to go down that path. And I think a lot of the time these issues can be cut off before they even get to that point by just setting things correct from the beginning and having that relationship and getting letting people know that it's okay to go and do your own thing, but let's do it the right way because it's a small industry. You know, I've built up a business here. I've given you opportunities and I wish you all the best if you want to go and do your own thing, but let's do it in a way where I can potentially support you. We can remain colleagues and friends afterwards. Um, but a lot of it just comes down to having those conversations. I'm glad I kept you. <laughs> I'm glad we're still friends. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a success story. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm joking aside. I think um, the pandemic probably accelerated my exit from from working with you, but yeah. we had spoken about it, and I can't remember if I gave you a time frame, but I think we said it would yeah. be six to twelve months. Yeah. Um, not because I had any specific plans, but I just knew I wasn't going to be at um, your clinic yeah. forever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just be adults. Talk. Um, it's okay. You know, things change. Yeah. Um, so if you're an injector out there, speak to your boss or yeah. don't whoever. Burn, don't burn bridges behind you. Yeah, 100%. You never know when you're going to have to walk back across them. <laughs> you know, maybe it's not going to work out. Maybe they go and start their own business and it, you know, isn't the success of cosmetic couture and it falls on its face and these people have got egg on their face and their relationship's destroyed you might be really happy to have them back and they might really love to come back. But because you've just had this awful ending, it's like 
it's like almost in rec- not rec- you know you can't sort of reconcile the relationship and it mm. all could have been avoided yeah 100% yeah. now I want to pivot the conversation to something slightly different and not really from a clinical perspective but trends so this crap like Barbie talks and <laughs> fox eyes and I know you guys obviously are doing butt lifts um, non-surgical butt lifts but yeah. how do you as a business not an injector but a business owner decide what what is maybe worth exploring versus what is just you know, crap for, for Instagram and, and then it will move on and people forget about it. Yeah, I, I think this is a relatively easy area for me because I don't claim to be a trendsetter. I, I'm i the last clinic that you're going to see that will be introducing this brand new Instagram treatment. Like we do do trap talks before it was the Barbie talks. We were actually already doing this. Yeah. It's just become so highlighted now with the Barbie movie. Um, but in terms of trends, I think that anything that's really brand new on the market, still you usually, Profilo except, still has a little bit of fine tuning. And I don't like to take that on. I think if anything's brand new, go and have it with somebody else. Mm. Go for it. Have fun. Let me know how it goes. And <laughs> usually you find... A couple of years progresses and we've changed how we do things. And that's when I'll introduce it. At least that way it protects my patients. It protects my reputation. I mean, you only have to look at Sculptra. Sculptra, as we know, had a few little issues along the way. But over the last few years, it's been rectified and now it's an amazing product and we never have any problems with it. Mm. So I don't really like to be someone that introduces sort of brand new products or things. I like to sit back and just see how they go and introduce the final product at a later date. But then also with other, you know, strange trends, I shouldn't say strange, unnatural trends, things like the fox eye. Mm. We are not that clinic. We, what I have learned as the years progress, you need to have something that you do well. You don't have to do everything, but I think what you do do, you should endeavor to do it really well. And the look and feel that our patients have is that, you know, we do natural looking treatments. So if you request a box eye or something that the human eye doesn't usually look like, I'm not your girl. And that's okay. You can go to anywhere else and they'll be able to give you a look that is like that. Mm. But I think that once you start to sort of step out, step out of the arena of things that you really believe in, it starts to all come undone and you sort of start to lose the, I guess, the vibe of what your practice is. So I think people know not to come to us for these, you know, brand new strange treatments because we just don't offer them. Yeah. I mean, I think Profilo was different because Profilo was obviously used in Italy for such a long time before. And by the time we actually got the treatment, it had been used so worldwide. So I was really comfortable to introduce that. But everything else, I just like to sit back and see how it goes. Well, it's (laughs) going to get interesting because there's a number of new things, you know, coming. There are polynucleotides, there's exosomes, there's new types of biostimulators like polycaprolactone. Sperm, salmon. Salmon sperm. Well, that's the, poly, yeah, that's yeah. the polynucleotides. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there'll be longer lasting, but also shorter lasting toxins and just more choice. Mm. So I, I guess I throw the question back to you. At what point do you think it would be worth not gambling, but being the trendsetter, like backing yourself to lead in that new thing it, that, you know, like Profilo, for example, that was pretty low risk and it's been really popular. Mm. Um, so when when might you sort of see things the other way and actually want to be a trendsetter? 
Well, I think you really nailed it with the with the risk factor. It depends on what degree of risk that we're looking at to introduce something that is brand new. I obviously love with our, you know, our Botox and fillers, nothing, nothing is ever really permanent. You know, I know that complications can happen, but in general, it, nothing is permanent. Mm. So if something was to be released in Australia that we thought would be really beneficial for our clients, I'm not completely closed off to it, but the first thing that I would look at is really just the risk profile. Yep. If something were to go wrong, can we take it out? Is it going to wear off? Are the problems going to be permanent? And that would probably set the tone of what I was most comfortable to introduce. I think it's more just about protecting your patients. Yeah. And I think if we were to bring in anything that was really fabulous and new, I tend to try it on my family and friends first. <laughs> and myself. <laughs> I like to try everything first before we yeah. um, sort of release them to other people. Yeah, and I think a lot of the the devil's in the detail, right? So, I mean, I think if you're going to introduce a new product or a device or something that's trailblazing concept, is to let people know that's what it is. Mm. Let it yeah, know, let people know this this is a new treatment. I haven't seen enough data to know whether it's going to be everything it says it's going to be, but. If you're willing to give it a go and you understand this is new, you might have a subset of patients that just love all the new stuff and they're happy to take the risk. Yeah. And so I don't think it's as black and white as I'm not going to do this. I mean, obviously, if that's just your business stance and that's the way you feel, then that's you should be true to yourself. But I think just in terms of taking that, that kind of mindset approach for the sake of it, I think there are some areas of grey where you can set the right expectation. As I said, you might have that subset of patients that just go, hey, if you've got some new stuff, I'm your, I'm your person. I'm happy to sort of try it and see what you think. And I think so. I think there's some ways to get around it. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. Um, you know, I, I mentioned a couple of products there because I will be using or trialing them soon. And I've you know obviously identified patients who I think might be good candidates, and I've had that frank, yeah. open chat. Yeah, it's new for me. I don't even have the product yet, but when it does come, um, these are the things that I'd like to try to improve the results we've already got for mm. you. Um, obviously, you know, I'm not going to say this is experimental, but there will be a learning curve. Yeah. And so are you up for that? Do you, do you trust me enough to, to allow, you know, to allow me to try that? And, you know, you've got patients you've had for years yeah. who will buy into that. And of course, you're not going to do that on a new patient who you don't have that, mm. that rapport with. So I think it can be done. Yeah. There's um, all, and there's also some benefit to being the first yeah, at well, some degree. So, I mean, it's sort of like that cost you know, that risk benefit analysis, you know, do you take the risk with the chance of some things not going according to plan, but the upside being that you get known as the person that was the early adopter, you're the expert, you're the one that's got all the notoriety because you were happy to take that risk. So yeah. different horses for different courses. Yeah. What's you can't you- first and let me know. Yeah, oh, well, <laughs> I, I try everything first, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough, Mr. Collagen. Uh, you haven't had your butt done yet, have you? No, I squat. You squat, yeah. okay, fair <laughs> enough. But what about that saggy cellulitis skin on top? I don't have any of that, buddy. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> now, pivoting again, I wanted to ask you something that always comes up, and especially for new injectors maybe listening. How did you decide on your pricing when you started up? Um, obviously, you'd worked at other clinics before, so you had a ballpark figure of you know what, what was, I guess, the currency of toxin and filler, but tell us your insights. Yeah, so when I worked for Juve, the prices obviously this is a long time ago, the prices looking back were so high, but people paid it. You know, one syringe, I think it was at one stage 850 mm-hmm. for one mil of product. Um, I think that we were at one stage there, I think Botox was around about $16 a unit. And I know that still happens in some places, but there was 
no packages. There was no sort of combination treatments for a discounted price. No cheeky cheeks, was, cheeky cheek packages, Jamie. No lips to love. Store, yeah, um, <laughs> none of that was a thing at all for us back then. Um, but as obviously chain clinics opened up, we had to change. We had to change. We had we had to meet the market because we were definitely losing clients to their four ninety nine Botox packages. Whereas uh-huh. I think at the time we were around about seven fifty for the same treatment. Mm. So progressively, as I've decided to do my own practice, the way the way I've positioned positioned myself is. Our Botox prices are incredibly competitive and somewhat similar to chains, but our filler is definitely probably a little bit more expensive than what they are. But the reason I've been comfortable to do that is for whatever reason, I feel consumers are less comfortable to pay more for Botox than they are to pay for fillers. I think patients themselves do see filler more so of an art Mm. and less so with Botox. Mm. To be honest, I feel this is maybe, this is actually not accurate. I feel Botox is just as challenging in an artistic sense as what your fillers are, but there is this real misconception amongst our general consumer that, you know, Botox is this lunchtime procedure that you don't need skills for when it's actually not true. I think if you really know your anatomy and you've really committed to you know, extending your um, knowledge on how to inject Botox to manipulate a muscle, there is such an art to Botox. There there really is. And I think it is a bit of a shame that that doesn't seem to be uh, well illustrated amongst our general consumer, whereas fillers, I, I do feel we have less kind of pushback on our filler prices. I still think that we're relatively compatible considering our level of experience, but it's definitely Botox, I think, is the is the tricky one for us to compete with chains. Mm. I've got some thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I, I think it's um, our own fault as injectors mm. or, or clinics and, and, you know, maybe the chains are part of this. It's seen as a 15-minute treatment that you just pop in and it's a lunchtime thing and it's quick and easy. And, you know, some of that is true once you've established a good plan and and you understand your patient. But that initial consultation and understanding, you know, what you can actually do with toxin, both upper and lower face, off-label, I think it's misunderstood and and probably not very well developed for its potential. Mm. And you know, patients will tell you very clearly, they think it's easy, but once they get a bad result, that's mm. when they realize how it's not easy. Mm. And we see bad results all the time. Yeah. Spock eyebrows and asymmetry and dropped, you know, lower lid, uh, lips mm. and all the rest of it. If I was an injector in a parallel universe where you were the business guru and I was an injector, <laughs> um, that's what I'd be focusing on. And for anyone that uh, wants some more information on what I'm about to talk about, go back and listen to episode 190, which was with Dr. Michael Kane, mm. who is the king of tox. And I think that if I was to look at Botox in three sort of obtuse categories, so one would be shit Botox, average Botox, like blow your socks off Botox, like the best result you've ever had. Most people probably fall into the middle category. Mm. They do Botox, okay. They do the three areas, no problems. The wrinkles are gone, happy days. Um, I think there's a subset of people who, no matter what they do, they just don't get it and shouldn't be injecting. And I think Mm. there's a very small percentage of people who take tox really seriously and do it better than everyone else. So they understand anatomy well, the relationship between elevators and depressors, natural, natural asymmetry in the face, and really take toxin 
rather than just point, shoot, kill to get rid of a line is actually looking at the face holistically. And Dr. Michael Caine talks about this in depth um, during our chat with him. And I think people need to, as a whole, need to look at tox more seriously and actually find out and educate themselves on how to become an expert in it rather than just being average. Because you think about your risk profile of tox versus filler. What's the worst that can go wrong? You might give someone a bruise. You could give them a droopy eyelid for a little while mm. and some aesthetic asymmetry, which can usually be corrected or somewhat improved with subsequent treatment or, or just some time. Yep. Um, they're in every three months. And if you can do someone's tox better than they're going to get it anywhere else, guess what? They ain't going anywhere else ever, yeah. ever. And your risk profile decreases and you can actually start charging more and you start to move. You know why I charge more? Because I'm the best. Yeah. I, and I give I you a result that no one else can give you. So go and get your $10 per unit treatment at one of the chain clinics and I'll see you in six months when you decided <laughs> that they can't do what I can do. Yeah, no, totally agree. What do you think, Jamie? I agree. And I've, I've actually had patients with that exact scenario where they might have been seeing me for a little while, paying a little bit more for their Botox than what they could get it for down the road. They go and have their Botox down the road and they kind of come back with their tail between their legs being like, okay, um, look, I'm just going to be transparent. What you did, like, can you fix my face? Like, I don't know what's happened. I just went down there and, you know, they had a special or whatever. Mm. And sometimes it just takes that one bad result for patients to appreciate the high level of dedication and skill that goes into doing good Botox. Yeah, And I have some patients that I do their Botox every three months and they were some of my first patients yep. that I treated within my first year of injecting. I think for me, when I when I first started injecting, I was a really terrified injector. I quit three times in my first year. I was terrified. Melissa and Nicole would always, um, they were constantly in my ear about, persevere, you're so nervous, and that means you're going to be a really good injector. Mm. But looking back, I think that was why I do go above and beyond to make sure that we are achieving optimal outcomes and our Botox is incredible. And I think that is why we've got so many patients that keep coming back to us for their Botox. Sometimes it's a blessing in disguise if they've gone somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Michael Caine and, and David are absolutely right. If you actually examine a patient properly and treat everything that you can to its optimum with tox, you can bill fantastically, have the happiest patients with you know much less risk than a filler, and build a business just off that. Yeah. Um, and of course, then if you add in filler as well, then you're really laughing from a business perspective. And yeah. I think your patients will realize that but yeah. but it's a, just an untapped potential yeah for I, most injectors sadly and i think a lot of that comes back to training yeah. you know botox is like a one-day course you learn you know you learn your three areas your on-label areas and and then that's kind of it and people just kind of continue on their whole career like this they never actually everyone's focused on filler so much yeah it's crazy you know, the new cannula the new plane they're going to inject it like it and, but now we're seeing fillers having a bit of an issue there's been like a huge overall reduction in in the industry with fillers because people are starting to pull back from that over-augmented look. Fillers yep. are lasting longer than what we thought they did. Um, and so what are you going to do if you haven't built a solid tox business and you don't have that patient loyalty when you get like a trend that moves like this? Yeah. You're sort of, from a business perspective, you, you're sort of leaving yourself a bit exposed because tox has been, it's like the tried and tested product that like is reliable like 99.9% of the time. Yeah. So low risk. I mean, it's just a no-brainer and it just amazes me how people just overlook it so much. 
So getting back to business, because gosh, we realise we're getting up to an hour and a half and I realise that you've rescheduled some patients to see us this morning. So thank you. So we won't keep you too much longer, but a couple of sort of business questions I wanted to ask you. So you've, you're a couple of years in, you've built a really successful business. Um, you know, I've had a good look over your business. And as I said to you, when I, when I texted you after I had a look through, like you've done amazingly for someone that doesn't come from a business background, like what you've been able to achieve is, is phenomenal. Um, but you've obviously reached a point where you know you want to take things to a next level. So sort of where are you at sort of with your sort of plans? Like what have you sort of, I guess, even realised in like, I'm not saying specifically me, but just sort of talking to someone that sort of made you think about things slightly differently and, and how do you think that's going to impact your sort of trajectory and what you're going to do next? Yeah, well, I guess um, the re- main reason why I reached out to you was because, of course, I was looking at bringing on another device I'm trying to read my numbers and decipher where we're actually making money. And it's incredibly confusing Mm. to figure out exactly where we're generating income for. Um, And sometimes I think as a business owner, you might see that your overall turnover has increased and you think, yay, that's like, we're going so well. But unless you can really read your numbers, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're making more profit. Are you working harder to make less or and, and bring in more income? It, it's, it's a bit of a minefield to try to really figure out what is a wise business investment. So it's not necessarily that I personally want to open up five clinics and be the biggest and the best. I just want to know that what we're doing, we're doing really well and really doing it efficiently, working smart not working hard, not bringing on devices and products and staff and resources that are really not benefiting us from a business perspective. And I think more is not always more. I know sometimes what can happen amongst business owners, you know, that the girl up the road has this great device. And so I'm going to get another device. But if you really take a step back and check your ego, are you purchasing these things and introducing new things to your business because it's more profitable, make, profitable, making you more successful as a business? Are you offering more things to patients that are beneficial or is it really just because you can? It's sort of being able to decipher exactly what the right choice is to progress as a business. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And so what are your sort of sort of goals and aspirations for the future? Like where do you sort of see if you could sort of you know, look a little bit into the future and, and where Cosmetic Couture is going to be and where you're going to be. Like, where do you want to yeah. take this? Because it feels like you, you're on this path to great success. You're already, you're already there. But what does it look like and, and sort of where do you want to go with it? I have obviously worked really hard. Yeah. I mean, I'm grateful that our numbers are good and things are going well, but I, I do a lot. I, I work a lot. So it would be really nice to get the business into a position where I wasn't the one making the bulk of the income. It'd be nice to be able to step away a little bit and, you know, go on a holiday or have Mm. a little bit of a breather and know that the numbers were at least on par. And I guess in the future, I don't, I, I, I don't know if I want to inject full time forever. You know, Jake, I'm sure you probably agree, but we really do give so much of ourselves as injectors, not necessarily physically, but psychologically and yeah. emotionally it, it it is a very taxing job when you're doing a good job so it would be really nice to have everything functioning without me being the star of the show yeah 
Yeah. And I think as you sort of move forward and progress and look to grow the business and, and look at bringing on other people to reduce your workload, there's, I think it's a good opportunity then to start looking at the business holistically. So yes, your numbers, how you're reporting them, how you're utilizing your CRM system, how you're sort of growing and developing all the people that are on your team. Are they the right people? Having looked at their, their contracts, making sure everything's kosher there. Are they up to date with like latest regulations and, and acts that are sort of changing all the time? Um, policies and procedures around stock control, all these kinds of things. It's a good opportunity once you get to this point, even though it should be done at the beginning, when you start to look at diminishing your role within the clinic and relying on other people, you need to make sure that there's like a, you've got all your sort of your boxes ticked off because you don't want something bringing you unstuck later, like an issue with a contract or you don't have proper policies and all, all of a you know, stock control policies and all of a sudden you're looking at your sort of your P&L at the end of the quarter and you're like, where's all the money gone? Well, we haven't had, you know, we're not doing proper stock control. We don't know, like maybe there's product that's disappearing, maybe it's being lost, maybe whatever. Uh, who knows where it's going, maybe it's ending up in someone's handbag. Um, so, I mean, there's all these sorts of things that, that crop up and it's like trying to herd cats. There's all of these different things going on at the same time. And, and as, as the more, what do they say? More money, more problems. Yeah. Um, and so I just think, you know, you're at a, a great point now where I think that you've built something so fantastic, but like taking it to the next level and educating yourself on how to create a business that's going to go beyond just what you're able to offer and stepping back as an injector and allowing yourself to put energy into looking at the business. Cause it's really hard to sort of be in that room, as you said, giving so much of yourself every day, all that mental energy, mm. and then to sort of change gears and, and looking at things holistically from, from a business perspective is very difficult. Yeah. What, what would you do if you could step back one day, we can not inject. I mean, obviously, you know, running your business will hopefully take care of itself once yeah. all those things are in place. But what would you like to do? I mean, do you have kids? Well, do you want to travel? Do you want to teach? Do what? Or start a podcast? Yeah, <laughs> everyone else yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I don't want to start a podcast. You guys are doing a great job of that. Um, but I, I would like to, if I were to take a little bit of a step back. To be honest, I think I'd just like to work on being a better business owner, mm. you know, a better boss, yeah. uh, uh, put my business cap on and not just an injector cap. The other thing that I have dabbled in recently was doing a little bit of education amongst injectors. And I was pretty nervous to do that because I, I sometimes I get maybe like a little bit of imposter syndrome. I think, oh, am I really in a position to really start training people? But I suppose I have been doing this for a while now. But I was actually so fulfilled after I did it. It's really nice to give back. Yeah, I know, you know, the injectors that I was teaching a few things, they reached out and were, you know, really grateful for the advice I could share. And it's a nice feeling. Yeah. So I would mind doing a little bit more of that. Yeah. Mm. And I think it pushes your own limits of, of what you think you know and, you know, revisiting your anatomy, like I was yeah. saying, and just makes you think about what am I actually doing every day? Why am I doing it this way? And maybe I need to change the product or yeah. whatever it may be. Yeah. And maybe just like a final thought from yourself for everyone that's listening out there that's been inspired by your story, which I'm sure there's many. What advice would you give to people that are considering starting their own business? I mean, if you could give advice to Jamie three or four years ago, what would that be? Well, definitely to do a little bit more um, business research and learn a little bit more about business in general. But Probably one of the big things was get an online booking system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
it, the, the amount of time it has saved us, we've only had online bookings now for almost two years and I do not know how we survived without it. Everyone needs an online booking system, but also to have your things a little bit more itemized so you can see exactly what's beneficial and what's not. Um, and also, I guess just to, if I were to speak to myself four years ago, maybe just to back yourself a little bit. I think you have to be a little bit courageous and believe in yourself and know that you have a point of difference. Um, I think that with just that alone will cause you to be successful. Yeah, 100%. Well, it's been a great chat. Yeah. really did Thank enjoy you. that. It's nice to get to know you better. I'm just going to quickly plug our Patreon because you're probably our newest member. Um, just recently, we've added um, some anatomy content, complications content. I'm going to start some ultrasound content, regenerative aesthetics content, as well as all the other stuff that we were already doing. So um, hopefully you explore that, Jamie, and Amazing. you can tell all yeah. your friends and injectors about it. Yeah. Uh, and if you're interested to become part of our community, just go to the link in our uh, Instagram bio. Just go to IA Patreon, or if you prefer using Googley, Google, yeah. not Googley, so Google. So up to about two hundred and fifty people now, roughly. Yeah, two hundred and fifty. Yeah, and um, so, so yeah. I'll just give the link. It's worldwideweb.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon, or just click the link in our, pa- our podcast description. Yeah, and we're lucky enough to have injectors like like Jamie that's jo- just joined us and, and thought leaders in KOLs from all over the world, as well as people that are brand new. So we just as well as all the content that we're putting out to help you with your business and your injecting, just having those WhatsApp groups where people can come and contribute and ask questions and, and get support from a really positive worldwide community, I think has been really valuable and, and looking forward to um, seeing you share some of your knowledge and thoughts because there were some questions going around the other day around, you know, I feel guilty sort of charging people the prices that I do and people can't afford things. And so we kind of touch on that a little bit, but um be interesting to get some of your insights as well, Jamie. So welcome to the family and and thank you so much for your time and rescheduling patients for us this morning and for dressing so fabulously (laughs) and um, wishing you all the best for the rest of your day and your journey and looking forward to to seeing continued success for you. Absolutely. Thanks Thanks again for having me on. I can't wait to explore the Patreon. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to plan our trip to the Central Coast to come and see you. Absolutely. Thank you, Jamie. Take care. Thank you. Thanks again. Bye. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.